The sermon text this morning is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Well, we're continuing this morning our series on biblical community by walking through some of the one another's of the New Testament. Now, this morning, we're looking at love one another. I shared this with uh, you guys a few years ago, but I thought it worth repeating given the topic. I have a friend here uh, who uh, on her first Sunday with us, it, it, was, it was a bit jarring for her. See, she grew up in a church where you weren't allowed to speak in the sanctuary. You could talk outside that room, but once you entered here, you were to be silent. So you can imagine how she was taken aback. She, she comes here first Sunday morning. She comes a few minutes early, sits down and looks around and we're just having a good time. We're talking, laughing, hugging, shaking hands. And she asked me afterwards, why do you guys talk in the sanctuary? And I said, well, I, I guess because we love each other. There was another visitor, uh, she, uh, she grew up in a church tradition where uh, you, uh, you, don't, you don't stick around after the service. Uh, you, you, you're there for the service, you receive it, and then there's no chit-chat, you don't, you don't hang, hang out afterwards, you just make your way out. So on her first visit, she uh, goes through the service, and someone comes, gives the benediction, dismisses us, and we all kind of stick around for a while, and she found herself... Why are they all still here? You know, uh, is there something happening after the service I didn't know about? Why do we stick around? Well, we enjoy each other. We, we love one another. There, there is something irresistible about a community that is so welcoming and, and, and loving. Uh, you, you just you want to be a part of it. Well, both of these ladies have found a home in our church um, but our life together at Christ Covenant is not just about warm human exchanges. There's a reason we love each other the way we do. We have been loved by God, and it's changed our lives. By the grace of God, something I've heard consistently over the years from those new to our church is that we are a loving, welcoming congregation. But it's also true that we have passed through some turbulent times, really, since covid Onward that have strained our relationships. The churches John was addressing had just recently passed through some hard times as well. A group teaching different things had just departed from them and those who remained were in some sense still reeling from the event. So John is shoring them up. He's bolstering their faith. He's declaring what identifies a genuine Christian? So one of those things is love. He says in 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 
So he tells them three times in this passage, love one another. In fact, this is the third time John has returned to this theme of love in his letter. There's an emphasis here we need to recognize. This was God's word to the churches of Asia Minor in the late first century, and it is God's word for us today. So John urges us to love one another because number one, God is love. It's his very nature. It's verses seven through eight. Second, we should love one another because God has loved us in the atoning work of the Son. It's verses nine through 10. And then finally, we should love one another because God's love is then perfected in us. Verses 11 through 12. So first, God is love. John says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. God is the very source of all true love. There was love between the persons of the Trinity before the world even existed. Jesus prays to the Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Man did not invent love. We reflect it because we're made in the image of God. And as John says, God is love. It doesn't simply mean God is loving, though he is. Uh, John is talking about the very essence of God, his very nature, It's not that loving is just one of his many activities. No, all that he does is done in love. We're talking about who God is in his inmost being. The theologian John Stott points out that this statement, God is love, is one of four in the New Testament concerning what God is in substance and nature. John 4, 24, Jesus says, God is spirit. 1 John 1.5, just earlier in this very letter, John writes, God is light. Then the, uh, the author of Hebrews 12.29, God is a consuming fire. Stott says that if God judges, he judges in love. Yet if his judging is in love, his loving is also in justice. He who is love is light and fire as well. Far from condoning sin, his love has found a way to expose it because he is light and to consume it because he is fire without destroying the sinner, but rather saving him. God is light and God is love. We have to hold those truths together. God is far more beautiful than our earthly conceptions of him. When we pare him down to what seems reasonable in our own eyes, we've just created a God in our own image. But it's not the true and living God. Well, what is the God of our age? Instead of saying God is love, you could argue that we say love is God. On the lighter side, we have this general notion of kindness to all people, this humanitarian impulse, which I'm grateful for. Uh, But we know it only goes so far. It's admittedly shallow and naive. You think about the song, We Are the World, from 1985. It's catchy, but uh, what does it really do? There's also this this confused fixation on the concepts of, of tolerance and discrimination. People will say, how can you dare say that the way one person experiences love or desires to be loved is wrong. 
Well, that's the spirit of the age to even ask such a question. That the best way to love someone is to never hinder their own self-expression. So the idea goes. Think about the sign in your neighbor's yard, love is love. It's one of those statements that I think intends to communicate something good and noble and substantive, but it's actually empty and hollow. And in fact, it's a doorway to great evil and misery. If love is untethered from any objective standard, then it is meaningless and it can be used as a cover for great wickedness. Just think of the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the tragic human wreckage coming out of this idea of free love. No, the Bible says God is love. All true love is from God. So this is, this is John's starting point for why we should love one another and, and certainly how we should love one another. He says, love is from God, and therefore whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, does that mean that anyone who loves is a child of God? Well, no, but we can't wrench this verse out of its context. Uh, just a few verses later, John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You have to believe So loving can't be pitted against confessing the truth about Christ. But it is true that unbelievers love one another as well. Because we're made in the image of God, an image that has been marred by sin but not erased, we should expect mothers to love their children. Unbelieving married couples many times have good marriages. This is the common grace of God. We should be thankful. Nevertheless, there is a decisive difference in knowing the love of God in Christ Jesus. Any other love, however noble, will not make someone right with God. But John's point here is that a person who has genuinely come to know the God who is love will be transformed into a loving person. It's a mark of saving faith. John says plainly, anyone who does not love does not know God. So our love for one another is not a take it or leave it kind of thing. It is a defining mark of who we are as believers. And so an entrenched unwillingness to forgive or a heart consumed with hatred or rivalry, or jealousy towards someone else in the church is an indication that you might not be a Christian at all. I don't think John's intention is is to chip away at our assurance that we belong to Christ, and that's, that's not my intention either. But if you feel the edges of an unloving spirit in your heart, this is a call for repentance. And friends, I take my own soul to task. As a dad, I often find my own desire for convenience and comfort and ease that it runs right up against the reality of living with six other people. And there's some chuckles. But my angry shouting is 
not only counterproductive and irrational, it is sin against God, and it is so painful and frankly frightening to my family. So brothers, if that describes you, agree with God today to put that behavior away and the underlying selfish desires. To put them to death in the power of the Holy Spirit and ask your family to forgive you. Doing so demonstrates that you believe the gospel, that you are a sinner in need of the grace of God, that in Christ you're a man who's been loved by God and is now born of God and knows God and therefore loves like God loves. This is who you are. You have a new nature. You've been born again. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul writes, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So friends, let us love one another and reflect our Father in heaven who is love. I could almost stop right there. That's enough for us to meditate on. But the passage goes on. His love is not abstract, but he has manifested his love and the sending of the Son to accomplish a particular mission. So this is the second basis upon which John urges us to love one another. God has loved us. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Our Living through the Son entails the death of the Son. And John says this is how God revealed his love to us. God is love in his inmost being. So if you want to see this love, the very heart of God, you have to go to the place where God's only Son was stretched out on a tree. And John is not embarrassed by this. There are some theologians today that say, you know, I don't want any of that talk about blood. They see God's love and his care for the marginalized and the outcast, but they reject the idea of Christ bearing the wrath of God on the cross in the place of sinners. But that's precisely where John goes. He can't conceive of God's love any other way. He doesn't leave the love of God to to mere feelings or words or a good moral example to follow. He tells us God's love reveals itself in a particular action. Paul had the same burden with the Corinthians. He refused to to pretty up his message with lofty speech or wisdom. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. John writes that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not a word we use in everyday conversation. John, actually, this is the second time he's used that word in his letter. Very short letter. He says it twice. I've got a friend in Kentucky, very simple, straightforward man. He said, I don't like big words, but the Bible uses big words. So I got to know what they mean. I really appreciate that. Propitiation means wrath bearer. 
It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. And this is what God sent the son to do. To receive the just penalty due for our sins. Friends, this happened in history. 2,000 years ago on a hill in Israel, God the son was publicly executed. He was nailed to a Roman cross in your stead. If you have your Bible open in front of you, just stare at those words in verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. So we can't understand love by starting with our love for God. A true understanding of love must begin with the very source of love, the original fount of love, God himself. Religious devotion to God will not save. Your love for God will not save you. You need God to set his love on you. So nobody's going to be patting themselves on the back in heaven saying, glad I made the right decision. I made the right call. No. No, we were dead in our sins. We had no desire for God. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul writes in Romans, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so God in love moved towards you when you wanted nothing to do with him. John says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. But maybe that's the deepest question of your life. Does God truly love me? Perhaps you're convinced that Christ loves you through and through, for he died for you. But the love of God the Father somehow escapes you. You think, what if he was reluctantly gracious to me? It took Christ dying for him to be gracious to me. Christ absorbed his wrath against my sin. What if the Father saved me because he was persuaded to do so by the Son? But it didn't come from his heart. What if God the Father doesn't love me in himself in the same way that the Son does? Perhaps there's this subtle suspicion that lies dormant in your heart that God can't be trusted. He doesn't really love me. He's holding out on me. You question his goodness. Those thoughts go all the way back to the garden. Those are ancient doubts, encouraged by the father of lies. So let's, can we lay them aside this morning? Can we lay them to rest because of this word? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how he shows us his love. This is how the father has proven his love to you, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So the love of God applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, carried out by the sacrifice of the Son, flows from the very heart of the Father. They don't have conflicting wills. The three divine persons live in one perfect unity. The Father has given us all that he has. 
If you look at verse 13 and 14, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And then verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. So John says that twice. So brothers and sisters, the father loves you. It's in his very nature and he has sent his only son to atone for your sins. And you are now his beloved child. John writes, chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I grew up on the King James. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we might be called sons of God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So if you're deeply convinced of this love, it will erupt in love for others. If you're captivated by God's love for you, you, you'll be compelled to love other people. And John says, if we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. It's, It's made complete in us. So we come now to the third basis for loving one another. God's love is then perfected in us. What does John mean by this? I mean, how could the love of God be lacking in any way? Can we improve upon the love of God? Well, we're helped by that first statement in uh, uh, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. So I think what John is saying is that God is spirit. He, He can't be seen. But he's revealed in the love we have for one another. His, his love is made visible in the love we have for each other. In that sense, it is perfected. It is made complete. And that would fit with what John writes in his gospel. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love for one another points to the one who loved us. I think you could also argue there, there's an internal sense of fully experiencing the love of God when we love one another. In that way, God's love is perfected in us. And John also says that loving each other serves to confirm that we do indeed belong to him. We've already talked about it. It demonstrates we were born of him. If we love one another, God abides in us. So loving others is evidence that God actually lives in you. Well, what should this love look like? John has just told us in verses 9 through 10. It means seeking the good of another at your own personal cost. The father gave his only son and the son spilled his blood that we might live. So I think few of us, Few of us will be called upon to physically lay down our lives for someone else. But God sees in secret. It's more like 10,000 self-sacrificial decisions and actions you take across a lifetime. I'm, I'm convinced it's a kind of muscle that has to be exercised. It's a path that you, just, you decide to walk again and again. 
And there's that old path, of course, that, that hab- habitual, self-serving, self-focused path that's well-worn in our hearts. And walking that path should make us nauseated because that's not who we are. That's not where we belong. No, a new path has been struck by the work of Christ in our lives. And we've got to walk in it. Just let that old path get, get overgrown, just consumed by the forest, lost to memory. But this path, this one, the path of love should be hard clay under our feet, well-trod and familiar. So maybe you made some chili for the, the contest at the fall festival. And you poured your heart into it. You worked all day. But in the end, you weren't even in the top three. But you decide to joyfully congratulate the winners. And that's one of those 10,000 tiny deaths across a lifetime. Jesus told us we gain our lives by losing them for his sake. There is fulfillment in emptying yourself for the good of another, for the glory of God. It's more blessed to give than to receive. We've got to practice this. First, you've got to get a deep knowledge of the steadfast love of God for you in Christ Jesus. If you have little personal knowledge of God's love, you won't be a very good lover of people. The love of God should soften and humble us. It should make you less inclined to dogmatically argue for your way of doing things, your way of seeing things, especially on debatable matters. Of course, we all think our way is right, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. But love doesn't throw up its nose at a brother or sister. 1 Corinthians 13, love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. The love of God should make us welcoming and kind and gentle and merciful and self-forgetful. You know, people should sense these things about you when they are in your presence. It should be the impression you leave behind. It should be the aroma, the quality of your life, the atmosphere of your home. But the reverse is also true. If the love of God is not permeating your life, people won't be refreshed in your presence. They'll sense your criticism. They'll pick up on your condescension. They'll smell the judgment oozing from your pores. And they'll seek to avoid you. Don't be such a person. If a bunch of those people are in a church, they will waft that ungracious air into the whole congregation. And it will become become a whole culture. The gospel of Jesus Christ should so fashion our hearts for one another with tenderness and compassion and charity. Again, John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, he writes this. The cross sweetens all our relationships in the church. We have only to remember that our fellow Christian is a brother or sister for whom Christ died. And we will never disregard, but always seek to serve their truest and highest welfare. To sin against them would be to sin against Christ. We should cherish one another. 
hold each other in high regard. That means knowing when to overlook an offense and when in love we need to get up the courage to address sin in a friend's life. Maybe their pride. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Loving well means we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. So if I just got a new job, I should grieve with my brother at church who is He is utterly distraught because he just lost his. If you and your spouse are unable to have children, you should rejoice with your sister who just announced at church that she's expecting. I'm not saying loving in this manner will be without pain. It surely will be. But this is where the love of God meets us. Just listen to John. He says, if we love one another... God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So as we continue to sacrificially love other people, we will more fully experience the love of God in us personally. He meets us there. Loving well means that there are times when we give up convenience and comfort and privacy in order to care for others in the church just because they're God's people. This isn't just for some elite group of Christians. This is what it means to be a Christian. One member here is in need of a wheelchair ramp at their house to get a loved one in and out of the house. So a group of men, they've gathered together. They've got it scheduled. They're going to take care of that. This is what Christians do. This is the way it's always been. We could go back to the year 125. There's a man named Aristides. And he wrote a letter to the Roman Emperor Hadrian to provide a defense of the Christian religion. This is what he writes. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. From widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they rescue orphans from anyone who treats them harshly. The one who has gives to him who does not have without boasting. If there is anyone among them who is poor and needy, And if they do not have any extra food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. So this kind of self-sacrificial love that Christians had for other people baffled the ancient world and it still does today. It's intriguing and curious and attractive. So I was driving through a neighborhood one Saturday morning here in North Raleigh and uh, I passed this one house. There must have been 40 people in the front yard. Moms, kids, dads. This was not a a professional landscape crew. But they were building a raised garden. They were raking, trimming, cutting the grass, doing all kinds of things. And I thought, that has got to be a local church in action right there. Caring for a fellow member. I wonder what the neighbors thought. Who are these people? Why would they do this? Our love for one another adorns the gospel we preach. It spotlights the God who loved us in the Son. So, beloved, let us love one another. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for loving us. We rest ourselves in the thought that your very heart for us is love. Before you even sent the Son, you set your love on us. Help us to believe and help us to excel still more 
and loving one another well for the sake of your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.